Father in heaven, we praise you that you are a speaking God. Praise you for our time these past ten weeks in 1 Timothy. And as we come to the end of this book, please would you speak to us again in your mercy. And shape us to be more like the Lord Jesus as we do. For your name's sake. Amen. What is a Christian? I guess, given that you're here this morning, that's not a question that is completely alien for you. But perhaps I ought to address the prior question. Why does it matter? After all, you might just think that the church is a sort of club. And this bit here, where we look at the Bible, is the kind of boring bit you have to get through to get to the tea and cake afterwards. Here is why it matters. All of us, whoever we are, have a worldview, a set of glasses, if you like, uh, through which we see everything. Uh, A set of beliefs and prior commitments that colour how we read everything that happens in front of us and that shapes the things that we decide to do. We all ought to ask from time to time whether the worldview that we hold to makes sense of the world we actually live in. Whether it answers the deep longings of the human heart, whether it produces in ourselves and in the culture around us a workable society. And so if you have drawn your understanding of Christianity from The Simpsons, or from Rev, or the Vicar of Dibley, or frankly from anything that comes out of our culture, then you will have got Christianity wrong. And you will immediately dismiss Christianity as an irrelevance. But is it? I would contend that Christianity makes the most sense of life, the universe, and everything around us, which is why we need to be clear on this question. What is a Christian? Of course, many of us, like Timothy, the recipient of this letter, know what a Christian is. He'd been a Christian for at least 20 years at this point. But like Timothy, we're forgetful people, aren't we? And so we need to be reminded, just as he needed to be reminded, what a Christian is. And so Paul here reminds Timothy and us of the three core convictions about Christianity and the one essential commitment that makes someone a Christian. Paul's going to apply those core convictions and that essential commitment to three areas in the Ephesian church. Uh, and, then, and those are things that I take it we can apply more widely in our church life here as well. But the heart of our passage is Paul's exploration of these three core convictions and the essential commitment. So we're going to begin there and then work out the applications from that point onwards. So we're going to start with what is a Christian? That's verse 12c, towards the end of chapter to verse 12 through to 16. The three core convictions... The basic planks of the Christian worldview, if you like, revolve around these three questions. Who is God? What is the story of the world that God is bringing about? And where do I fit in? Those three questions. Paul knows that if Timothy gets these fixed in his mind, he'll be able to live according to God's purposes in the world. And so before you can ever ask the question, who am I? And what am I here for? You have to ask the question, who is God? And at its most basic level, everyone in the world has an answer to that question. Everyone is a theologian. 
whatever your worldview, this is the most fundamental building block. If you hold that God doesn't exist, for example, well, that must affect the story you think we're living in. Because if there's no storyteller, it's not really a story at all, it's just random, chaotic events. There's no longer rhyme or reason to anything, and that must shape how you think about yourself. Who am I in a world without God? And so behind everything, Paul says the most fundamental core conviction of the Christian faith is this. Verse 15. Look down with me, would you? Partway through verse 15. There is only one God. That's where he starts. He is the blessed and only ruler. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. A phrase that we've seen in our small groups in recent weeks in Revelation means it refers to Jesus. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. So there is only one God, and he rules over everything, but he exists as multiple people. He exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. Certainly, at least here, Paul is talking about the Father and the Son. And Paul then goes on to talk about the perfections of God. God alone is immortal, which is to say he has neither beginning nor end. We all have a starting point in our lives, don't we? We were born at one point, we're going to die at some point. God has never experienced either. He is Immortal. He lives in unapproachable light, which is to say he is perfect, holy, glorious, radiant. There is no spot or shadow of turning in God, to quote other scriptures, whom no one has ever seen or can see, because God is invisible. He is different to us, perfect in every way. And not even Moses, the great prophet of the Old Testament, could look at the face of God and live. And God is so holy and so other to us. The most core conviction about God is that he is wholly good, infinite in time and space, in majesty and power. There is nothing beyond him. There is no other God or power like him or to rival him. He exists in three persons. Do you believe in the Christian God? Do you believe that Jesus is this God? And if you don't, why not? Building on that foundation then, Paul then talks about the plan of God. Where is the universe going? So in verse 13, Paul reminds Timothy that Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate and confessed. He confessed that he was the king. That's important in in, in this particular passage that he refers to the confession of Jesus, because Paul is going to remind Timothy of his own confession. Uh, But the essential point that he's reminding him of is that Jesus is the centre of the story. The the central act in world history, the story that God is writing, is that God himself came to earth as a man to die on a cross to save sinners. Back in chapter 1, verse 15, we saw that, didn't we? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners with a purpose. That is the central event, the, the twist, the turning point in the story of redemption, if you like. It's the turning point, but it's not the goal, is it? Because the thing Paul refers to over and over again in this passage is eternal life. Or or the the return or or appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's there in verses 12, 14, 19 and other places implied. Uh, Jesus died to open the way for sinners like us to approach God. But he's coming back to make that permanent. 
to make that eternal. There is a, an end point to human history, the whole history of the world, at which point Jesus returns and takes us home. Core convictions then about who God is and about his purposes in the world. But Paul doesn't leave it as an abstraction. He makes it personal. A Christian is someone who has begun that eternal life, begun that relationship with God already. And this is where our, our final core conviction meets our one essential commitment. Just uh, look down at verse 12. Uh, Paul talks about the eternal life to which you were called. And by that he means this. Uh, for Timothy and for every believer, there was a point in time when God called us. Uh, God beckoned us to himself. He irresistibly uh, declared that we would be his. And God gave us, personally, that eternal life. And God is not working out his plan for history out there. He is saving particular people like you and I. He's working out his salvation plan here. And before we think about response, just think about that worldview for just a moment. See, I think... Uh, we, we, could, we could explore all of those things in much, much more depth, of course, as we're skating over things here. But I think that Christian worldview has enormous explanatory power, doesn't it? It explains why the world is on the one hand so beautiful, what a lovely sunny morning it was as we came in, and yet, because of sin, we can also explain the murder of Joe Cox this week, or, or the shootings in Orlando. It gives meaning to an otherwise meaningless universe. It gives us something to live for, because there's eternal life. It means that people matter, because Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He cares about people. People matter. It means that our choices matter. It means that what happens after death matters. An intellectually robust worldview that answers the deepest longings of the human heart. The questions that we, we raise about purpose and meaning and why we're here and, and what it's all about. Longings that were designed only ever to be met by Jesus. How else do you explain love? Joy, sorrow, the knowledge that we all have inherently that this life is not how it should be. Knowledge about God, what God is doing shapes how we see the world. It's the glasses that we should see the world through. But it must do more than that. It's not simply an intellectual exercise in grasping what God has declared. It must also shape how we do life in this world. And so our one essential commitment is there in verse 12. Look again with me. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Timothy, I'm not telling you these things to give you a lesson in theology. You know this stuff. I'm calling God, uh, Father and Son, and all of the, these, these true facts about God as a witness uh, to you. A witness to the things that you confessed before the church on the day of your baptism. That's what he's talking about, the day you, you made confession. You stood before them all. And you not only profess to believe these things, but you committed yourself to live by them. And uh, you committed to live uh, for God every day until the Lord Jesus returns. 
Can you look back and see not only what Jesus has done, but what you have promised to do? Can you look forward to the day when Jesus returns? Like any relationship, your relationship with God works like this. You get to know what God is like, and at some point you commit to being in that relationship with him. Timothy, you've made that commitment. You've committed to pursuing Christ every day. Don't give that up now. What is a Christian? Someone who not only shares those core convictions about God's person and his plan, but also someone who has made that one essential commitment to trust Jesus for eternal life and to walk by that faith, following Jesus every day, trusting him to uphold us. Timothy knows all of this, just as most of us know all of this. But Timothy needs to hear it again because in the midst of his church, which is eating itself up with false teaching and unchristian living, Paul needs to remind Timothy to live out the things that he believes. And what Paul says here is, is therefore to be applied primarily to the Ephesian church. As we look at these applications he's about to give us, they are for the Ephesian situation. But nevertheless, human nature hasn't changed a great deal. And though we are 2,000 years on and some distance from Turkey, I take it these things apply to us to a greater or lesser extent as well. So Paul gives three uh, applications into that situation which we can hear into. And the first is this, pursue virtue, verses 11 uh, to 12. Timothy is told to pursue virtue. Notice verse 11, but you, man of God, but you, there is a strong contrastive phrase to the false teachers that we were looking at last week in verses 3 to 10. Listen back to the talk from last week if you missed it. They chase money. They have no interest in real Christianity. The, the truths that Paul's just laid out for us. I've called this section Pursue Virtue, but really there are four commands at the beginning of this passage. Did you notice them as Rachel was reading? And I think they come in two pairs. I, we could list all of them out, but I think Pursue Virtue kind of sums them up. The first is there. Uh, Timothy is to flee. Uh, flee the vice list of verse 4. Uh, the things that the false teachers get involved in. Flee the love of money. Flee the divisiveness that's destroying the church. Uh, my old boss used to say that near his parents' home there was a, a, a field. And in the field there was a bull. And on the gate of the field there was a sign that said, This bull can cross this field in under 10 seconds. If you can't cross it faster, don't try. If you're being chased by a bull, I take it you flee. You don't turn around and try and pet it. You don't try and get as close as you can to it. You flee. You run as hard as you can. I don't know if you've ever watched kids playing TIG in the playground. Uh, somebody's it, and everyone flees from that person. But you notice, they also flee to a place. Like the person crossing the field, you flee to the, the far gate, and you try and hurdle it to get away from the bull. And so the kids run to homey. We're always fleeing from something to something. Flee sin, says Paul. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Righteousness and, and, and godliness are the broadest possible words that Paul could use here for the whole of the Christian life. Every area of life. Pursue goodness, Christ-likeness. Do good with everything that you are, Timothy. Pursue it with faithfulness to Christ and love for all the saints. Timothy, you've started well, but now is the time for you to endure. It's easy to be a Christian, isn't it, sometimes? 
when the sun seems to be shining on your face, all is well in the world, and you're getting on with everybody, and it's all great. How will you fare, Timothy, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death? You must endure. But notice he's to do it with gentleness. So easy to face down your opponents with harsh words. Uh, strong language. Andy was just uh, suggesting that the way that we uh, think about the referendum this week, uh, I guess we want gentleness, don't we? In the way that we treat each other, even if we fall down on different sides of the divide. Gentleness. A face your opponents with gentleness. Flee their camp, Timothy. Uh, oppose them because they're wrong. But do it with gentleness and endurance. Do it like Christ. If that's the the struggle with the false teachers, there's a second struggle going on. The second pair here is the internal struggle. Uh, Timothy is told to, uh, verse 12, fight the good fight. Which here I think means uh, fight the internal battle with sin, with with compromise, with his own cowardice, his timidity. uh, His... Uh, desire to run and lock himself away in a room and not, in, not engage with the false teachers. Now, we're all sinful. You shouldn't think of Timothy as more sinful than the rest of us. And we're all tempted to sin all of the time. And every Christian is faced constantly with the decision, are you going to go God's way or the sinful nature's way? And Paul says, you can fight. You can make a choice to fight for God. Discipline yourself, train yourself in godliness. Take control of yourself and the environments you put yourself into. And so, take hold of eternal life. Timothy, on the day you made that confession before the church, on the day you were baptised into the church, and you made that public declaration that you were were in Christ, God gave you a new heart, a new set of desires by the Spirit. He gave you eternal life on that day. Of course, that will only be obvious to everybody when Jesus returns. Your life is hidden now with Christ in God, Colossians 3. But even now, you have resurrection power to live the Christian life. The power of sin over you is broken. You're not alone. God is working in and through you. Timothy, take hold of your privileges. Live as an eternal man. A new creation person. Fight sin. Fight the false teachers. Live for Christ. And so friends, are you fleeing sin? If you share Paul's convictions, and you've shared in his confession, will you flee the lusts of this life with their divisiveness, their envy, their slanders? Will you flee bitterness and shame? Will you lay aside the old hurts that dog you? And instead pursue virtue. Knowing that Christ has died for your sins, he's paid the penalty, they're done with. Knowing that he's died to free you from their bondage, so that you can live for him now. Knowing that he's coming again, to free us finally from sin itself, when we get to the new creation. Will you, like Paul, like Timothy, fix your eyes on that day, the future day that is coming at a pace? Will you put your eyes on the prize? Of course, if that feels very general, and it is a very general application, then Paul goes on to apply in a very specific way to the wealthy people in the Ephesian church in verses 17 to 19. Uh, Paul here says something very profound, I think. He says that money is not a bad thing. 
And all the things that God gives to you are good things to be enjoyed. But at the same time, money makes a terrible God. There are two areas we've come across as we've been going through this book that the Ephesians are encountering to do with money and possessions. On the one hand, the false teachers are coming in and saying, 4 verse 3, live very simply. Give up foods. I guess maybe it's a sort of bread and water diet. Don't live too luxuriously. Give up marriage. We're not into the body. The body matters for nothing. We're all about the spirit. We're all about living spiritual lives. The body doesn't count for anything. And God says no. On the other hand, in 6 verse 5, we find out they're motivated by money, by greed. And Paul says both dismissing material things and the lust for material things are wrong. Verse 17. God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So you think of God as a sports board, isn't it? To think of God as, as stopping us from enjoying the world that he's created. But uh, Paul says, no, no, no. Being wealthy is not a bad thing. God is the creator of all things. And he makes things well. He gives generously to his people to enjoy the things they've been given. Do you enjoy the things that God has given you? Do you, do you give thanks to him for the things he's given Money and possessions are good gifts of God to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. But notice that being rich can lead to pride and to putting our hope in wealth. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth. Because that's only for the present world. We've seen it this week, haven't we? The stock markets have taken a bit of a battering because of this uncertainty over the EU referendum. You know, I'm sorry to go back to that. Again, but it's, it's, it's a very timely illustration of how fragile wealth is. You know, billions of pounds knocked off the stock market because of you know, politics. Wealth is fragile. It's a good thing. Enjoy it. But don't put your hope in it. Because it disappears like that. Even if you keep it to the end of your life, it's gone at the end, isn't it? Because you go on without it. It's, not for, it's only for the present life. Instead, verse 19, the wealthy should take hold of the life that is truly life. Not the life that that lasts until you're in your coffin in the ground. The life that starts at your conversion and goes on forever. Remember what God is doing. Play your part in that story. Don't get sucked into the stories about this life that that lasts until the grave. Recognise not the riches but the God who gives the riches so richly to you. Instead of living for wealth, the wealthy must, verse 18, do good. Now Paul begins to play with the the riches language. It's all over this passage. He says, um, God has richly provided for the wealthy, so they are to be rich in good deeds, and generous, and willing to share. Why? In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. The coming age. Don't live for this life, folks. Live for the next. Paul constantly has his eyes on what God is doing, on where we're going. He lives within the story that God is writing. He's calling people into eternal life, which obviously begins now, but goes on forever. If you have a God who so richly provides for his people, who is generous all the time to his people, well then you're liberated from the love of money, aren't you? You don't need to love money. You can love the God who gives all the money 
And so you can put aside your ambitions to build an empire here for yourself. Set aside the, the, the pride that comes before the eternal fall. And instead you can give. Live generously, knowing that riches are fickle. Riches are fickle, but God is constant as he blesses you. What would it look like for us to live so generously? I'll leave that one to chat about afterwards, because there's one last uh, application that Paul makes. And, And here in verse 20, Paul draws the whole letter together. So we've been looking at a section that's run from 5 verse 1 through to verse 19, and here Paul sums up the whole letter. Uh, He gives, uh, if you like, uh, an application of the letter that is rooted in what Paul's just said in verse 12 to 16. And here I just, as we end, I want to notice two words here. uh, A command and a promise. Guard and grace. The command to guard what has been entrusted to you. It could mean a number of things. It could mean the church. Uh, Paul has sent Timothy to Ephesus to take care of the church. Go and guard the church. Timothy, take care of the church. But in 2 Timothy, Paul picks up this language and expands on it. And he means by guarding, guard the gospel. Timothy is to guard the gospel. And so if Timothy has one thing to take away from this whole letter, it is to guard the gospel. Of course, that's going to mean defending it against error. When you see gospel men engaging in Debates. Uh, I have done a little bit this, this week with a, with a number of people over a particular issue. Now pray for us. It's easy to wish that your pastor would stay out of debates, stay out of trouble. But we are to guard the gospel. And as we do, please do pray for us that we'd be gentle. Pray that like Timothy, we'd be willing to get involved even when it's costly. And defend the integrity of the gospel. But actually, the thing that guarding the gospel most involves is this. Giving it away. You guard the gospel by giving it away. Which seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because if you've got a a secret, or you've got a treasure, and you lock it up uh, in in a safety deposit box, and you make sure they've got good systems to protect that from the thief. You don't want other people to get their hands on your treasure. But the gospel, the gospel's not a secret, And it's a treasure that the more you give it away, the more it multiplies. So nobody lacks it by giving it away. In actual fact, you you defend the gospel, making sure everybody's clear on what it is. As a church, as we get to know the gospel better and better, we are better defended against false teaching, aren't we? So the gospel must be taught, it must be preached, it must be declared in every situation. It's why we open the Bible in all our meetings. And make it a priority that we hear the gospel. You guard the gospel by showing the failure of the alternatives and persuading people to love the gospel. Who God is, what he's doing, where we're going, how we fit in, how we're to live in light of our trust in Jesus. All of which might sound too much for Timothy. He is a timid man. How can he come out of his shell and and do what he's been called to do in the face of this robust false teaching? And and the answer's there for him and for all of us in those last five words of the book. By grace. Grace is God's generous free gift of help to his people. 
God doesn't call Timothy to guard the gospel, nor to live as an outstanding Christian man in every area of life without help. He walks with us. He, he carries us by his Spirit. He motivates us by the Scriptures as we, as we get to know him in his Word. He strengthens us through the, the encouragement of the community we're part of here. As we uh, see in each other the Christian life being worked out, so we, uh, so we learn to live it out ourselves. Of course, Paul is writing into a particular historical situation where there is a lot of false teaching, where the love of money is ripping the church apart. And I take it that's not where we're at here. I'd be happy to be corrected on that, but I think that's not where we are, at least at the moment. And so Paul has applied the gospel into those particular situations, encouraging Timothy in in the most general terms to flee sin and pursue virtue. He's given him specific commands about guarding the gospel that I take it we can all at least partly participate in. Yet Paul has the wider church in view as well, doesn't he? Insisting that everybody ought to live generous lives in view of God's generosity to us. And perhaps each of those things strikes different people of us here in different places. And I guess there'd be a lot more different applications that we could make from Paul's central point here. All of us need to hear Paul's fundamental gospel point. Are you persuaded that God is who the Bible claims he is? Are you persuaded of that? Are you convinced that he's doing what Paul claims that he's doing? That is, do you share the core convictions of the Christian faith? If not, why not? I'd love to talk to you afterwards. I'd love to find out. Uh, I'd love to know what persuades you against those things. But if you do, if, if you are persuaded, then have you made that one essential commitment? Have you actually taken the step of following Jesus? Have you made the decision that, that the fundamental break that Timothy made at his baptism to turn from a worldly way of living towards following Christ and going on into eternity? Have you made that decision? And if not, why not? And if you have, and many of us have, will you remake that commitment today? Will you try again? We all fall down, we all stumble, we all struggle with the Christian life from time to time. Will you get up and do it again? Will you follow Jesus today? Will you flee from sin? Will you pursue virtue in every part of your life? Let's pray. Our Father, you are very good, and your plans are very good. And we delight as your people to be able to see the world as you see it, albeit as through a glass darkly. And we delight to see the goodness of your plan, and we delight that you have called us out of darkness into your marvellous light. And we pray very much that you would help us to remember our conversion and long for the day of Jesus' return, and long to live for him in the meantime. And I pray for any here who haven't yet made that commitment, Father, would you persuade them, would you call them, even today, call them into your kingdom, that they might know the privilege and the joy of being your people and heading for your new creation. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, as we finish our service, we're going to share the Lord's Supper together very uh, quickly, not irreverently, but recognising time. We, we want to be able to acknowledge uh, that we do trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is his instituted way that uh, we do so, remembering his sacrifice, remembering our faith in him. Are we a Christian? Are we fleeing from sin? Are we fighting the good fight? We do recognise, you should have these sheets with you, these little um, laminated sheets. I do hope you've got those. Please do take those up. As a reminder, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not us. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It is the truth of the gospel. So we are going to pray now, in a sense, in recognition of our sin, but also in greater recognition of God's love and forgiveness through Christ. Let's pray together. Paragraph 6 on that first Uh, Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men, we acknowledge and confess our many sins, which we have committed by thought, word and deed, against your divine majesty, provoking your wrath and indignation against us. We earnestly repent and are truly sorry for all our misdoings. The memory of them grieves us, The burden of them is more than we can bear. Have mercy on us, most merciful Father. For your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake, forgive us all that is past, and grant that from now on we may always serve and please you in lives wholly renewed by your Spirit, to the honour and glory of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So we pray, acknowledging God's greatness, his purity, his holiness, recognising our own sin. Essentially, it should polarise us, it should push us to absolute extremes, recognising how weak and frail and uh, needy we are, but recognising how good and gracious and loving God is and willing to forgive us. And so we come now to uh, remember the Lord Jesus Christ, who has made all of that possible through his substitutionary death on the cross through the symbols of his body and his blood and the bread and the wine. But we do so humbly, which is why we pray, paragraph 10, if you turn your cards over, let's pray together. Paragraph 10. We do not presume to come to this your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. We are not even worthy to gather up the crumbs under your table, But you are the same Lord who delights in showing mercy. Grant us therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat this bread and to drink this wine, that our body and souls may be cleansed by Christ's body and blood, and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen. So as 1 Corinthians remind us, as we take this bread and we Uh, drink this wine. It is done in remembrance of all that Christ has done for us. But it is done and we proclaim to one another and before God our faith in him and our faith in a sense uh, together as his church. Let me pray. Now I'm going to ask the elders to come up and help distribute the bread and the wine. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do remember now your great sacrifice for us as your arms were hung up on a cross and nailed to a cross and you took all the punishment that we deserve for our rebellion against you. 
Help us remember appropriately, humbly, that your grace has been lavished upon us through that unbelievably sacrificial act on the cross. And may we live rightly in response to all that we've learned today, in response to all that the Christ has done. Amen. The others would like to come out.